Once again, we welcome you back to Moving Forward with Young Voices. This is a weekly opportunity to highlight some of the uh, contributors and talent from the Young Voices organization. We're happy to welcome back to the show Ben Cope, who's joining us from the UK. Uh, Ben, for those who are meeting you for the very first time, tell us just a little bit about yourself. Hi, Brian. Great to be back on the show. Uh, Yes, I I live in London. I work for a strategic communications uh, agency. And I'm looking at an article that you have written for Reaction.life. And Ben, I got to say, this was a really great article in that I'm I'm pretty focused on, you know, the economic things that are going on here in the U.S. Inflation is running crazy. I see, you know, the, the Federal Reserve here is trying to, uh, to, to rein in inflation. But I hadn't stopped to think about the larger impact on the world that has been using the dollar as a reserve currency. Your article is about how the Fed's mission to curb U.S. inflation could actually kibosh your new prime minister, Liz Truss's economic ambitions. Let's talk about how what's going on economically with the dollar impacts other nations. And let's talk specifically about some of the prime minister's ambitions. Great. Yeah. So, um, so perhaps first, if I zoom out and, and talk about why the why the U.S. dollar is is so strong and why it's likely to continue to be strong and why why that matters. So, so I think the, the first point is that we're we're clearly in a in a global economic downturn. Perhaps some would say a crisis. And as the the world's reserve currency, the dollar is seen as a, a safe investment um, d- during during difficult times. So a lot of investment has flooded into America over the last few months. That's made the dollar. Uh, appreciate become stronger, and then the se- the second point of why the dollar has become so much stronger is uh, are the interest interest rate hikes from the from from your central bank, the the Fed. So as it's raised interest rates, the dollar has become a, a more attractive asset. Investors have put more money into it, raising its value. So over the last twelve months, the dollar has appreciated by average of about twelve percent across um, other major currencies, and that's had a that's had a really big impact. Um, around the world, um, and then if I just go go get into perhaps why why it's likely that that's going to continue. So, so Jerome Powell, the the chair of the Fed, he's been he's been raising raising interest rates, and in, in my article I talk about how he's trying to emulate Paul Volcker. So he's he's the, well the, the legendary chair of of the Fed from the from the nineteen eighties, and he so inflation was very high. He raised interest rates a lot, and People thought that was a very good thing because it created macroeconomic stability, arguably for the next 30 years. And Powell's Powell's been trying to emulate it by by raising rates very steeply now. But I argue that the situation is is different in the 21st century. So he looks a bit like a general trying to fight the last war. So um, so inflation well, is arguably is beginning to taper off even before Powell's interest rates have transmitted into the market. So. Basically, he could be he could be overdoing it by acting out of ideology, not evidence, and that has a, that has a really big impact globally. Wow, and and you anticipated actually one of the questions I want to ask because I, I had read about uh, Paul Volcker. I was a kid growing up in the in the nineteen eighties, mm. but I remember you know interest rates being you know astronomically high, eighteen percent you know for a for a mortgage, just insanely high interest rates. At that time, are you aware? Did did it uh, did did the U.S. Economic uh, troubles or, the, or the, the the high interest rates did that affect the the global economy to the degree that it affects it today, or have they become much more interconnected in the last forty plus years? 
Um, I think so. It, it definitely did have an effect in the, in the 1980s. So it caused a, it caused a downturn, uh, a short term recession in quite a deep recession in the, in in the US, which which had a big effect globally. I think you could you could argue either way whether it has a the US is you know the globalization now whether the US is more influential or whether um, the US doesn't have quite such a, a monopoly on on the world's economy. I think you could argue it either way, but but de- definitely it. it um, in both instances, raising interest rates deeply in the 80s and raising them now is going to have a, a really big effect. So, what are some of the ways that uh, the new Prime Minister Liz Truss's um, economic plans, first of all, what are the challenges she's facing and, and, and how, how does the Fed's response uh, impact what she hopes to do? Yeah, so we, we've Liz Truss, the new Prime Minister, she came, into, came to Downing Street with a, a bold um, economic plan, which was all about boosting economic growth. And that's going to be very difficult for her for a variety of factors. But I, in my article, I talk about due to the strength of the, the US dollar, because the dollar is so strong, it's likely to cause a downturn in the US and around the world, which would mean that if Britain is going to grow a lot, then it's going to have to do much better than everyone else, which will be really difficult. If she's going to borrow to um, to achieve this, that borrowing is going to be more expensive, um, and it's likely that inflation will will rise further as we spend more on those um, debt interest payments. And then the last point I, I, I was going to make is that um, UK businesses are likely to become attractively cheap assets with our sort of comparatively weaker currency, which um, is unlikely going to to help her her long term growth ambitions if we if we 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 sell off what's left left of. Uh, British industry, um, but I think it's, it's important to flag here that there's there have been you, you may have seen some significant political events in the UK over the last few days where essentially Liz Truss has has been forced to um, abandon a lot of her a, a lot of this agenda due to the reaction from well largely from the, from the markets and um, but I think but I think there's still some some really important broader lessons that can be learned from from this and 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 the strength of the dollar. Are you experiencing um, in inflation right now in the, in the UK? Yeah, definitely. I, so, um, yeah, personally, yes. You, you see, you see the statistics um, high and persistent. I can't really. Well, Bank of England predicts that they will continue to stay high. So, it, in in the 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 Fed's efforts to to rein in inflation in the US. Um, is is making it much more difficult for other countries to do the same. Wow. So, I, I have to ask this, and I, I'm, I'm not a huge fan of, of fractional reserve banking or central banking, for that matter. I, I feel like sometimes uh, there's just too many fingers, you know, in the pie that are that are meddling and doing things. But is it possible for them to, to get ahead of inflation, in your opinion? Um, I, I'm having some doubts you know, on on this side of the ocean, what what about from your vantage point? Is is this something that the Fed can get under control, or is inflation likely to continue to to run its course and and go ever higher? Um, well, from a U.S. perspective, I, I think I, I'd be of the view that, that the Fed is probably doing too much, even from a from an American perspective. I think they're likely to overdo it to tip the U.S. if not into a recession, then um, severely hampering growth. And I think, you know, so in my job advising advising businesses, exec, just anecdotally, executives are much more worried about recession, about future recession than inflation. And I think that that's that, that's true in the UK, and I'm and also for our for our US clients. Um, 
So yeah, I've I've heard rumblings, and and I'd like to get your take that uh, the days of the dollar as the world's reserve uh, currency are are numbered. Um, does that uh, does that jive with how you see things? Um. I mean, I, 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 I'm probably not an expert to talk in the long term. I think in, the, in this crisis, crisis probably not. I, I think it seems it, it seems like the, the the strength of the dollar, the, the impact of that the Fed is having on the dollar is having is having huge impacts around around the world. Um, you know, in, in developing countries, for example, they a lot of them have, have large amounts of debt held in in U.S. dollars. So when the dollar becomes um, a, a stronger asset, there it becomes more expensive for them to service their debt. So. You know, we saw earlier in this year Sri Lanka defaulting. I mean, you can argue that's due to incredibly poor governance, but uh, much much stronger countries like Egypt, there there are there are there are worries that they could actually default on their debt just because the dollar is is so strong. Is there anything that's waiting in the wings that that could step in? Should the dollar, for for some reason, uh, lose its status as world reserve currency? Is is there something else in the works? <laughs> oh, I'm not I'm not sure. You, you, there there are. I mean, you, you could you could argue whether whether there would be uh, another existing currency, whether that's that's that, that's the euro, one of the the main Asian currencies, or you could argue that um, you know maybe one of the the sort of digital first currencies that are being developed right now could that be could that be an alternative? Um, I'm not sure. It's a, it's a fascinating area though. Okay, well, look, I, I sleep a little better knowing that you're actually following this, <laughs> and if I have questions, I can I can turn to you and say, Ben, what do you think about this? In the meantime. Um, how is how is the average citizen in the UK uh, coping with you know the the economic uncertainty? Uh, are are people feeling the the pressure to reduce spending? Are they feeling the pressure to to you know hold tighter to their pocketbook? Yeah, you see you you, you see it everywhere. I mean, uh, super, supermarkets, for example, have been out with some some pretty bleak statistics recently about how people are, are cutting down on either, even very small. You know, whether they're small portions or cheap items, um, so people are definitely feeling the pinch. That there's huge worries about um, when people come off of fixed rate mortgages over the next few months that they're going to really feel a sort of a massive, a massive rise when they go over to, to variable, variable rates. Rents are up a lot. Um, yeah, and I, I think there's there, there's a panic as well that people are facing this crisis without a government that, that is really looking like it's going to do anything about it or, or competent enough to, if it, even if it wanted to. Um, okay, yeah, I've got to jump in talks. and stop here because we're up against the clock again. We're talking with Ben Cope. Ben, where can people follow you on Twitter? Uh, they can follow me at Ben H. Cope. Welcome back to Moving Forward with Young Voices. I'm happy to welcome back to the show Elise Amedro. She is a Young Voices contributor, and Elise, for the people meeting you for the first time, tell us just a little bit about yourself. Hi, my name is Elise. Uh, I grew up in Switzerland, so <laughs> that explains the accent. Uh, did my undergrad there in business, and then moved to the U.S. for my master's degree, and I now work in healthcare policy in the Washington, D.C. area. Well, I'm looking at a very interesting article that you penned for the Wall Street Journal about how animal testing harms humans, and apparently there's been some action in the uh, in in the U.S. Senate and a bill that would modernize the FDA that apparently uh, would put some limits on this this testing. But it's not just the lab rats that they're looking out for, right? That's right. So I think people. Well, first, just a bit of background on the on the bill. Uh, the Senate passed this bill unanimously. It was a bipartisan bill. Everyone agreed that there, there isn't a need for 
um, animal testing before a drug goes into human trial, trial. Now that sounds scary because you're thinking, well, how would I know that it's safe? Like, how can I put it in a human being if it hasn't been tested on an animal? Well, as it turns out, animals are kind of a bad proxy uh, in many cases for, uh, for safety. So you never really know, even if a drug does well in, a pers uh, in an animal, it might actually do, do poorly in a human being. So by protecting uh, animals and eliminating this mandate that drugs be tested on animals, we can also protect human beings because we can do better testing than animal testing. We have tons of technologies right now that allow us to do uh, much more accurate testing before we try it in human beings. I was surprised to learn in your article that uh, the, the mandate for animal testing is 80 some years old. I had no idea that, that it went back so far. Right. And at the time, believe it or not, um, blood testing wasn't even really a thing. So this mandate is from 1938. Uh, it was implemented because at the time we didn't know any better, right? Of course, you wanted to test it on something. And uh, the goal of the Food and Drug Administration, the FDA, their goal is to protect people from harmful effects of drugs. So we need those guardrails, no doubt about that. However, the technology has evolved so much that whatever was meaningful in the 30s is no longer all that relevant. And this mandate has been in place just kind of as a legacy from the 30s. So talk to me about what uh, what exactly does the bill do and and what are some of the things that have changed that uh, that make it so we don't we don't need to test on animals anymore. Mm -hmm. The bill itself is obviously it needs to be enacted. It's only been passed by the Senate so far. But what it does, it, it simply tells the FDA and, and drug manufacturers there is no need for animal testing. You can do animal testing if it makes sense but you're free to use whatever testing device provides the most accurate results before we go to human trials. So it doesn't ban animal testing. Some would like it to ban animal testing, but that's not what the bill does. The bill only says you don't have to do it. You can, but you don't have to. Um, and the technologies that have evolved, one of them, perhaps my favorite, is called organ organs on chips. And in fact, um, scientists have been able to replicate the mechanisms of some uh, of some organs. So, for instance, a lung. Um, currently, you know, you might know of a petri dish. <laughs> you know, you test a drug in a petri dish, you see how it does, but it doesn't really tell you well how does it interact with a lung that's breathing and that's taking in air and then you know like using it for your body. Well, organs on chips are actually they replicate the what the lung does and they replicate the membranes of the lungs. So you can do all these things and then. Um, you know, make that that organ on chip um, try this drug and see how it reacts, how a disease reacts in that environment. Um, so it's very accurate and it's really promising technology. Yeah, that's wow. That's cutting edge science, isn't it? Yeah, it's I mean, I think it's very exciting. And that's what uh, what pharmaceutical manufacturers really should tap into in the future. We can save all these animals lives, but we can also just promote innovation. I think what this bill does is it tells Manufacturers, just go be innovative. Find whatever way is best to test your drug. Show us what you know what what you've got really with with this new compound that you've produced. So it's very promising on, on the in, uh, innovative technology side, but also obviously for human beings, I think we can we can go much faster. And the nice thing too is animal um, testing takes time. It's very onerous. You just have you have to have access to all these animals, like you said, not just mice, but also uh, we, if we just look at animals, there are also bigger animals involved sometimes. And uh, all of that is very expensive. Um, and being able to remove them and simply go with a lab based technology that does not involve animals 
can really allow, allow smaller pharmaceutical companies to, to try something new uh, at a much lower cost. And I know that, uh, as you mentioned, you know there are some people who like to see all animal testing whatsoever banned, but uh, it's it's refreshing to see this is not a bill that apparently has become bogged down in in being politicized. It looks like there's some serious bipartisan support from from both sides of the aisle. Right, and it seems you know at the end of the day, people are people like science, right? I think there's a lot of talk today about promoting science. Good science is what we should be following, and in this case, it's it's obvious, right? I think if the mandate. I have actually, I'm, I'm pretty sure that if the mandate were 10 years old, we wouldn't be passing this kind of bill, right? People would be afraid. But now we've had a long time to, to, to see how other technologies are, are evolving. And, um, and I think this, this bill can really satisfy both sides of the aisle. Maybe on, you know, on the left, it, it's, it might be the idea, you know, animal protection is something that usually appeals more to maybe like a, you know, a Democrat or progressive side of the aisle overall, right? Uh, on the right, there's you know, the, the innovative aspect. And also, it, it can be crony, right? So, because animal testing is so expensive to do, you actually keep out smaller innovative players from the market and you keep it consolidated around those big co pharmaceutical companies. And I think on, on the right, there's also an appetite for more innovation, cutting the cost of, of production and, and uh, research and development so that we can have access to cheaper drugs. Nice. So I, I'm curious, because you can tell a lot to, about a particular policy by both who's for it as well as who's against it. Who are the strongest supporters of this measure? And is there any group or any, any organizations that, that are pushing back against it? Um, so I think the strongest proponents are actually some of the animal rights uh, you know, groups. Uh, whether they be on the side of um, you know, protecting animal lives or simply on the side of, of um, well, the animal right, they will protect the animal's rights. And then you have the, the innovative, smaller pharmaceutical companies, biotechs are very big fans uh, of, of uh, eliminating this mandate because that's really what's holding them back. Interestingly, on this bill, um, some pharmaceutical companies didn't necessarily come out in favor. And I think it has to do with the fact that not everyone likes um, being able to uh, you know, uh, let smaller players be part of this um, pharmaceutical uh, industry. Uh, the opponents, I would say, are actually some some of those. But but I think in general, um, you know, some some people actually uh, believe that the science is not clear. Um, the, you know, they they have kind of a stake in in the industry. And I think um, there's a lot of money in in animal testing. There's a lot of government money that goes to that. The NIH funds a lot of animal testing, actually billions of dollars worth of, of animal testing. Um, and I think everyone who, anyone who receives those funds, it could be universities and it could be um, all kinds of research institutions, those might not be in favor of that because it just means less business and less money for them potentially. Very interesting. Um, what are the prospects for, for the uh, House of Representatives to pass this bill? And for that matter, will, would the Biden administration support this and sign it into law? I can't speak for the Biden administration. I'm not entirely sure now. I think I hope it will respect the will of, of the people as represented by the legislators. But it has good prospects. I think the fact that it wasn't unanimous uh, in the Senate is a very good sign because I think the Senate tends to be a, a tough place to pass anything these days, being you know so so split. But um, I, I'm optimistic. I think it could be included in a year-end package or a reconciliation uh, a bill like down the road. So maybe just as soon as this year, we might see uh, the law actually change for the better. Well, that's exciting, and and I'm excited to hear. The, what was it called again? Tissue on a chip? Is that is that what it was? Uh, or organ on organs a chip? Organs on a chip. Yeah. yeah. 
I mean, I look, I, I don't run in the medical circles, but uh, but I'm constantly amazed at uh, some of the innovation. Uh, we're, we're definitely living in the future, it seems. Right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you can't stop. You can't stop it from happening. So. Better, better let it unfold for um, to the for the protection of, of human beings. Again, we are talking with Elise Amedro. Uh, let's talk about where people can follow your work and and where they can follow you on social media. Um, the best place to find me actually is LinkedIn. Um, maybe one day LinkedIn will come out with handles like YouTube did just recently. <laughs> um, so you can find me at Elise E L I S E, and then my last name is Amedro A M E Z hyphen B R O Z. All right. Thank you so much. Great to visit with you once again. Thank you so much, Brian. Welcome back to Moving Forward with Young Voices. We are now joined by Jack Salmon, a Young Voices contributor and writer on economics. Jack, good to have you back on the show. For people meeting you for the first time, would you mind telling us just a little bit about yourself? Yeah, it's great to be back here. Thanks for having me. So I'm a, a research associate, and I mostly look at um, areas such as fiscal policy and, and budget, spending, deficits, and debt, all the fun stuff that we're hearing a lot about today. Yeah, about that spending. There's, a, I don't know. I I'm just a layman, but I have this perception that uh, spending has has never been as high as it is right now. Now, does, does that ring true, or have there been times where, you know, it's 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 been higher? I think it rings true. This this may actually be one of the most spendthrift administrations yet. Although you could be deluded into thinking the opposite if you heard some of the <laughs> political rhetoric that we're that we're hearing these days. Yeah, I, I mean, uh, what what exactly is the story here? The the Biden administration boasting, well, you know, we reduced the deficit. Uh, you know, saying that they're uh, they're being fiscally responsible. Tell me about some of those claims. Uh, what, where are they making those claims? So we've heard this message for the for the past few months um, from the administration, especially from the president. But a couple of weeks ago, it, there was a particularly striking statement made that, that this was the administration that had cut the deficit more than any administration in the past and that the deficit was going to be coming down by a trillion dollars this year. And that that was the point where I thought, well, I've, I've got to write something about this because the data is telling me something very different. And what exactly, so a, what exactly is the data telling you? So I did a deep dive and... What the what the president and the administration are, are doing is is that they're effectively cherry picking the data. So they're making the case the deficit has come down compared to last year. Well, well that, that is true in some sense, but last year isn't exactly an effective baseline to be to be working from. We had massive multiple trillion dollar deficits. About eighty five percent of the spending from the American Rescue Plan was dispersed in twenty twenty one. Also, the December coronavirus package that everybody forgot about in December 2020, that was a $900 billion package. About 85% of that was also dispersed in 2021. So we had we record high deficits. So if we're comparing this year to last year, yes, there's going to be somewhat of a, of a, of a downward trend in deficits. But that's really not what we should be comparing to. We should be looking at what was the CBO projecting deficits would be three weeks after Biden was inaugurated as president. So I took the data from the February 2021 CBO report and compared it to actual deficits. And I found that 
it's actually about $900 billion higher um, the, the cumulative deficits from both 2021 and 2022, the two first years of, of, of Biden's administration. So by that metric, this, the level of deficit spending is actually almost a trillion dollars above what was projected three weeks after he became president. Man, I don't want to sound like a cynic, Jack, but uh, it, it, at the rate that, that the spending has been taking place, I don't even know why they bother trying to pretend that, no, 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 we're doing it responsibly. I mean, we talk about trillions of dollars and, and nobody even breaks a sweat, whereas just even a, a couple of decades ago, talking billions of dollars, people kind of took a breath before they would say billions. Yeah, well, the trillions are, are now becoming the new billions, unfortunately. Um, <clears throat> but I do feel that we are somewhat reaching a, a breaking point. Um, but but ju ju just one more point, just as a reminder, this um, this new fiscal prudence that's been found among, among the Biden administration, this is the same president that spent the entirety of last year pushing an additional $4.4 trillion of spending on the Build Back Better and the American Families Plan. So the, 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 we can't forget about that. That's definitely a part of the story for this for this deficit-cutting president. But yeah, you make a fair point. But, I, but like I say, I, I think we're reaching a breaking point, and it's, it's going to be interest rates <clears throat> that are really going to put a strain on federal finances. This is something that I'm increasingly looking at and paying attention to, because I've, I've been warning about this for a couple of years. I remember during 2020 and 21, most politicians and economists were telling us that we can continue spending into the foreseeable future because interest rates are going to stay low forever. They've been falling, <laughs> they've been falling or low for the past ten years. Therefore, they're going to be falling or low for the next ten years. Well, that just isn't the case. And now we're starting to see some strain on on fiscal budgets. In August of this month, just to give you some idea, I track the budget data on a monthly basis. In August this month, it's the first time in in budgetary recording history the interest payments on the debt servicing, so that's how, that's the interest that we're paying on our huge stock of debt, was the same level as in the entire defense budget for the month. So we've now wow. reached the point where interest on the debt is exceeding military spending. And I think the next, the next threshold, probably in the next 12 months, will be where interest on the debt spending is actually higher than, than Medicaid spending. And from there, I don't know how much higher we can go before it really starts to crowd out everything else. So what are, what will politicians do to in order to to keep that spending going? Obviously, they may have to trim back in some areas, but um, I just don't see many of them having the stomach for the kind of austerity that that would be required to to you know slow it down or at least put on the brakes. That's most likely true. Sadly, there's a part of me that's glass half full, and I and I like to think the interest rate spiking putting pressure on, on the federal budget would bring us back to a sort of 1990s consensus where where both sides were brought together and had to come to, to an agreement to reduce the budget deficit, which they did. Um, then there's the other part of me that's that's been watching things over the past few years, and I just don't I don't see this as politically feasible. There's, there's too much um, public choice dynamics involved in the federal budget. Uh, the, the two main drivers of our long-term fiscal imbalances are, are Social Security and, and Medicare programs, and I don't see those being touched. The, the current administration and prior administration's <clears throat> solution is to do nothing and then in 10 years cut benefits by 25%. Well, that, that's also not going to be <clears throat> very politically po popular, but um, it's, it's palatable so long as we push it out to the long term.
Right. Well, it's they're kicking the can down the road. As long as we don't have to face the accountability for this, exactly. you know, let let uh, let the populace or the the people who would be receiving those benefits, you know, let them be angry after I'm out of office. It sounds right. like. Is is there any call for um, real hardcore fiscal responsibility as opposed to just oh look we're being fiscally responsible because we've we've adjusted the numbers in a way that we think is favorable? Is there anybody standing up and saying we've got to do this even if it's painful? I'm not seeing strong signs of this yet, but but one thing that gives me hope is um, I've written critically about economists like like Jason Furman, Larry Summers. Um, Olivia Blanchard in, in the past because of their argument that interest rates will be low and we can keep spending um, forever with, with no repercussions. And they've started to change their tune over the past few months, particularly with inflation and now with interest rates. And, I, and I'm starting to see some signs of, of recognition that perhaps those, those theories about fiscal sustainability weren't, weren't quite as safe as they were made out to be and that perhaps we should be a little more wary. So, so I'm seeing positive signs, but nothing strong that, that really, really strikes me yet. And and along those same lines, I mean, it wasn't so long ago that the Biden administration actually uh, was was adjusting the definition of what constitutes a recession uh, versus what it had been or what people had considered, you know, the, the definition for some time. Are, are we going to see a return to reality or will politicians continue to try to to spin this in their favor? I'd like to think that that we're going to see more signs of of economic reality. Um, I'm not seeing many signs yet, but it's early days. And, you know, the impact of of things like rising interest rates really has a, a, in economics, it really has a lag. Uh, The spike in interest rates we saw in the 1980s didn't really start to hurt until the 1990s. Um, And one of the reasons for that is that our debt the average maturity of our debt is about five or six years. About half of our debt matures in three years or less. So it, so it takes a few years for those painful effects to be felt. We're only just starting to see the tip of the iceberg. So I suspect what we, I, at least I hope, we'll start to see some, some more f- fiscal prudence in the coming months and years. Now, of course, we have midterm elections approaching within the next couple of weeks. Uh, we have, uh, you know, the, of course, a general election in another two years. Uh, if for instance, uh, the administration that's in power is no longer in power come you know the end of 2024. Are the Republicans likely to tighten up on that spending more so than their Democratic counterparts, or are they largely going to continue business as usual? Sadly, I'm going to have to say business as usual. And um, I, I, I did a historical analysis of this back in 2020, and I looked at the the division between um, Republican and Democrat governments, whether it's divided government or unitary. And Republicans are always deeply fiscally responsible when they're in opposition. But when Republicans have a chance, <laughs> when they hold all positions of power, they're actually the worst spenders of all. So I, I, I'm not going to hold my breath that there'll be any difference, um, depending on who's in the White House. I don't think it makes that much of a difference, especially now we're seeing the rise of this, um, particularly on, on the on the national conservative right, uh, pro-welfare state, uh, industrial policy, pro-tariffs. So there's this big government conservatism seems to be dominating right now in the Republican Party. So I'm not hopeful on that side. Sounds like powerful reinforcement of watch their actions, not just their words. Again, we're talking with Jack Salmon. He's a Young Voices contributor. Jack, where can people follow your work and where can they find you on social media? Uh, you can find my work on the on, on my Young Voices bio page, and I believe my Twitter handle will also be on that page. All right. Thank you so much. 
Welcome back. This is Moving Forward with Young Voices. This is our fourth and final segment today. And we're very happy to welcome Peter Pischke back to the program. Peter, nice to see you. Howdy. Tell Great us to be little, here. Tell us a little bit about yourself. For people who are getting to know you for the very first time, what makes you tick? Oh, uh, I just love doing good journalism. Uh, I, I went to Jay's school. I, you know, I'm an independent freelancer and I like working with young voices because they help me to be the best journalist I can and help me to get out great work. And, you know, as long as I can, all the thing that makes me happy really is just doing good work. As long as I can get the work done, I can reach out to people, get some truth on issues I care about. I'm a happy camper. Well, I'm looking at an article you wrote for OrdinaryTimes.com about uh, Elon Musk. And uh, as you mentioned before we jumped on the air, this is a topic we could talk about for quite some time. So let me, let me have you set the stage for us, if you would. Uh, when, when we go to talk about Musk, I mean, he's got a lot of, lot of irons in the fire. What are some of the specific issues that you'd like to discuss concerning Musk? Musk, the biggest thing I think on people's minds is his situation with Twitter, though there are many people who are concerned about his um, relation to what's going on in Ukraine and uh, this uh, Starlink program. Uh, Elon is in a bit of a bind. With Twitter, he, I, I think he was serious initially when he wanted to do this, but there is a strong argument to made, and I wrote about it for Ordinary Times, that perhaps it was a strategy so that he could offload Tesla's stock while it was at the high and uh, turn that in liqui- into a liquidity. I think there's a lot of evidence to suggest that, that the, the strength of the Tesla stock and his interest in acquiring Twitter, there seems to be a correlation there. And people are really surprised because it feels like it feels like at some points weekly, it changes what Elon's going to do. It's like Elon's going to buy Twitter. Now he's not going to buy Twitter. Now he's going to buy Twitter again. Oh, but maybe he's not really. And it, it, it just everyone leaves their spent, their heads spinning. You're like, what in the world is going on? So I think that's the thing that people care about most. But I mean, Elon's a huge guy. <laughs> There's so many things you could talk about with him. So I, I got to know, because I, I mean, I told you before we went on the air, I actually was a little bit optimistic when I saw, well, he's interested in buying Twitter. Maybe some of the uh, the censorship, you know, will be rolled back. But you point out in your article, you know, Elon essentially, you know, turned around and flipped the bird at his supporters, yeah. you know, on that Twitter deal. Where does he stand right now? Is he still looking to acquire Twitter? Or is he looking to back out of the deal? How, how is that playing out? As far as I can tell, Elon does not want to buy Twitter, and he is hoping that it will not happen. So basically what happened is Elon decided, Elon went for the deal. He wanted it. He agreed at a 54 share price, which is above the value, quite a bit above the value. Um, Twitter was happy to do it eventually. And then he became less interested for whatever reason. I, I think it's because he didn't really want to buy Twitter in the first place, possibly. But who knows? Um, then Twitter sued him over the summer. And because he was hoping he could shake out of it, but that's not what happened. Twitter held firm. They really had their their bite on strong. And so when he went, he was working with the courts and they were setting it up. He would have to go to disposition at the first week of October. And as that became closer, it became more and more apparent he had to do something to get out of it. So he said, OK, I will buy Twitter. And they're like, great. And then they said Twitter said, OK, so you're going to pay for it at the 54 uh, share price that we agreed to. He says, no. I'm only going to pay for 40 for the share price, which is a little about what it is currently. And and Twitter's like, wait, what? So basically, it looks like Elon, maybe he's serious about getting buying Twitter, but I think it's probably so we didn't have to go into deposition. Because if you're going to deposition, they can ask you 
not everything, everything, but quite a bit. And he is such a big guy and he has such a bombastic personality, such a history that could do serious damage to his other ventures. The ones he actually likes like Tesla or OpenAI or SpaceX. And so, you know, it, it's, it's just a coincidence that after he agreed to this, one of his um, top financiers says, I'm not sure I want to go through with this. Well, how convenient. Uh, so uh, it, it's a gigantic mess. Um, and I, it's hard to believe how crazy this thing has been. It's just been a constant whirlwind of changes. And I was like you. I was hopeful at first. I was like, if, if Elon is into something, then he's really into it and he works hard at it. And we've seen amazing stuff. However, if Elon isn't into something or he loses interest, then problems happen. I think we're in the latter situation. I know one of the concerns that was brought up months ago when when uh, he was was looking to back out of the deal was he said, well, it looks like uh, there, there's way too many bot accounts on Twitter. And I was under the impression that that number was extremely high. You point out in your article there are bots, but but it's it's a highly inflated number that, that has been floated out there for people. What's the actual percentage look like? We we don't know. Uh, and people, the other thing you need to keep in mind isn't just that they're bots, but you know how big are they? What are their influence? There are a fair amount of bots on Twitter. It could be as high as perhaps ten percent. Most estimates say maybe two point five to five. But the biggest accounts on Twitter are not bots. Bots tend to be smaller accounts, more anonymous. There are plenty of bot accounts that actually are very useful. They'll keep track of certain stats. They'll keep you aware of certain news topics. Um, bots aren't necessarily a bad thing. It's hard to believe Elon didn't know there were bots. Look, I've been a Twitter user off and on for 10 years. If you use Twitter, you know there are bots. Like that, That's just common knowledge. Um, it's a wacky platform. There's no way he didn't know that. Secondly, nowhere in the contract does it say anything. Oh, if there are bots, this, this deal can be reneged. That wasn't part of it at all. Uh, and I don't know why he thought he could just complain about this and they would just let him slip through the grasp. Twitter, look, is it a cool platform? I love it, but it doesn't make a lot of money. It's a clout platform, meaning it has the big, important people, has a lot of small people, but it doesn't actually make much in advertising dollars. So Twitter has always kind of been a weird one. So I'm sure Agrawal and the rest of the Twitter board, at first they're a little frustrated, but they came, they quickly came to their senses saying, actually, that's a lot of money offering us on the table. Let's get out of here. So Twitter's likely to win. Whatever court battle it you know it finds itself in yes. with with Musk as of right now yes okay uh, something else you pointed out in your article and, and again I I don't have a Tesla car so um, I just have to appreciate it when my friends come and show theirs off but I didn't realize that uh, you know this this car which it just seems is becoming so ubiquitous everywhere but it's actually it's 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 a losing it's not it's not a money making proposition um, at this time. It seems like he's had a lot of subsidies that, that have really helped him to to get it going, but it, he's not making money on it, is he? No, Tesla's awesome. Their their tech is amazing. Their cars are amazing, but they don't make much terms of money on their own. They get most of their money through as you as you alluded to uh, support from the government. They get a lot of uh, surplus strength from different programs that they take full advantage of. And honestly, people were just enamored from the beginning. Elon's a cool guy, Tesla's a cool car. The stock was massively overinflated. Just get this, just in the last month, we have watched Tesla lose almost a third of its value. And much more than that since when all this started in April. And, and Elon knows it. Look, he, he's, he's, he's a bit of a, a, a blabbermouth, but he's a smart guy. 
And he knows like this thing isn't going to last forever. And everyone sees the recession ahead. Uh, and so he's like, you know, it makes sense why he would go forward with Twitter. With Tesla, who knows? I mean, it's amazing technology, but you're right. As we were talking about before the show, its applicability for normal people is less than you would think. Like there's not enough um, uh, heavy metals, rare earth metals, lithium on the planet so that everyone could have a car like that. And I, it's just not as big and successful a company as many have been led to believe. Okay, so the, you didn't mention Starlink specifically in your article, but since I've got you here on on the horn, I'd like to I'd like to ask you what what about Starlink uh, is is this something that that um, that Musk is is seeing success? In? I know he had a little tete a tete with Ukraine about providing Starlink, mm-hmm. and then gave an opinion they didn't like, and basically they told him go pound sand, and he says okay, I will, but. Is is the Starlink project and and the um, you know internet uh, sat or satellite internet is that proving to to be you know a, a good thing or is that something that's struggling you know like the car company? It's a good thing. I think it's just dependent on the situation. If it was just for you know the average American, no, it's it's not worth it. It's too expensive. Even for many rural Americans, a friend of mine, Jeremy, he got it for his farm in Wisconsin. There were plenty of issues. However, in emergency situations, in areas where free internet or there's extreme censorship of the internet, you know, if you're like, we just have hurricanes down in Florida, Starlink's amazing. It's an amazing technology and hopefully it'll only get better with time. I've been using it for about, about a year and a half. And I have no complaints. I'm not going to pretend like, oh, it's the it's it's the best thing ever. But compared to the the speed of internet that was available to me living in a rural area, it's pretty remarkable. And it has been, you know, at least as reliable as as what I was able to experience living along a very populated corridor in in Utah. So I wish him luck in his ventures. But I also appreciate that, uh, Peter. We have people like you to to keep our feet firmly grounded in reality. Where can people follow you and your work, and where can they find you on social media? Uh, you can follow me on Twitter, at HappyWarriorP. You can find my stuff. I'm all over the place, Federalist, uh, Reason, Newsweek, etc. Um, I work with Young Voices, and you can often find me on my podcast, Happy Warrior Podcast, and on my Substack, same day. Okay, and he's got an amazing logo. You'll just have to take my word, but you'll have to look it up. <laughs> thank you. Peter Pischke, thank you so much for being our guest today on Moving Forward with Young Voices. My honor. Thank you.